Hello, everyone. Uh, good morning. Um, my name is Manu Shankahari. I'm an ICM uh, associate editor. I am with uh, Dr. Anders Granholm, who published, who's the first author on the COVID steroid 2 trial. We're going to discuss the main trial as well as the pre planned Bayesian reanalysis. Good morning, Anders. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, good morning, and thank you very much for having me. Great. Um, shall we just for the um, listeners start with the main COVID steroid 2 trial that you published in JAMA? Could you give us a summary of that trial? Yeah, I would love to do that. And first, I would like to thank everyone involved. There's too many people to mention, but one deserves special mention. Maria Varmonk, who is, was the primary PhD student and coordinating investigator who, who led much of the work. But uh, in short, the COVID steroid 2 trial was an investigator-initiated international parallel group blinded randomized control trial. We conducted it in 26 hospitals in Denmark, India, Sweden, and Switzerland. And it was conducted both in ICUs and in departments of infectious diseases and pulmonary medicine. We randomized 1,000 patients who were 18 years or older hospitalized with COVID-19 and required at least 10 liters of oxygen per minute or uh, some form of uh, mechanical ventilation. And uh, patients were randomized to 12 versus uh, 6 milligrams of dexamethasone once daily for up to, to 10 days. And uh, the primary outcome was the, the days alive without life support at day 21, with additional outcomes at day 20, 28 and uh, day 90 and day 180. Um, and in the primary analysis, we found non-statistically significant results for, for all outcomes at both day 28 and, and day 90, but with all uh, point estimates and confidence intervals being mostly in favor of, of benefit with 12 milligrams. And, and just as a short additional notice that the trial was actually built on a previous trial that was uh, shut down early due to the recovery results and the REACT uh, prospective meta-analysis which the first COVID steroid trial contributed to. So so that's the background and the main details on the trial. Oh that's fantastic Anders. Now this let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the paper that we are really keen on discussing which is the Bayesian reanalysis that was uh, published in intensive care medicine. Uh, could you could I start by asking, why did you plan a Bayesian uh, reanalysis of the trial uh, right from the start? Yes, and I think it's very important to highlight that the, the analysis was planned right from the start. So the full protocol was available before the first interim analysis, and it was really uh, the idea came up at the same time almost as the main analysis. So it was something that we wanted to do from the beginning, and I think there's multiple reasons for that. First, planning a frequencies trial in a pandemic with a new disease that's not very well known is quite hard. It's difficult to come up with, with all estimates for control event proportions and what effect sizes we are likely to see. Second, at the time that we started the trial, I think most of us and probably most of, of our peers were mostly familiar with frequencies or conventional statistical analysis. So we wanted to do both analysis, but we didn't feel that we and maybe all readers were were prepared for the Bayesian analysis as the as the primary analysis of the trial yet. But we felt that it was important, especially as we recognized that there was a chance that there would still be some uncertainty after the trial. And given that people have to act in a in a pandemic, we felt that it could bring some more 
uh, nuance to the to the interpretation and and could could at least help us learn as much as possible from the trial regardless of how the primary analysis went so i think that was mostly the the, the background and there's been some commenting on whether or not we need to have two uh, analysis of all trials and i'm not sure that we we do that uh, forever but i think we're currently like in a transitioning stage where people are not familiar with Bayesian methods yet and especially when the pandemic started a lot of people were not so so we felt that it was necessary to have both to to probably interpret the trial great that leads me on to the key question really for for a practicing clinician uh, what should they do based on the covid steroid 2 trial should they change their clinical practice to 12 milligrams of dexamethasone instead of 6 milligrams well, first as a disclaimer, I'm a full-time researcher right now, so I'm not a practicing clinician at the moment, so so it should be viewed in, in, in that lens. But my impression, and and I think what most people, at least here in, in our department, uh, believe is that 12 milligram is most likely a reasonable and a, and a better choice than 6 milligram if dexamethasone is given as the sole immunosuppressing therapy. It gets a bit more difficult if com combined with other therapies, and and I think opinions differ on that depending on on who we ask. Um, we see more people combining 12 milligrams of dexamethasone with uh, interleukin-6 uh, receptor inhibitors, but it's not done in all patients, and 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 it may not be the proper thing to do. We really really don't know at the moment whether whether 12 milligram alone or six milligram plus. Uh, plus tocilizumab or similar, or the combination is best. Okay, let's kind of uh, talk a bit more about this point, which is the uh, adjusted mean difference of 1.3 days in your primary outcome. Um, my question to you is, the in the uh, original frequentist analysis, you conclude that actually a trial may be underpowered to detect a significant difference, and in the Bayesian reanalysis, you say, there is a 63.9 posterior probability of clinically important benefit. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, my question to you is, um, is that enough to say we should move towards 12 milligram or should we think about other co-interventions before we change anything? I think that will depend on what's available. So in, in situations where, uh, where other uh, therapies, especially interleukin-6 receptor antagonists are contraindicated or are not available, then I think given that we, we need to, to act and need to treat patients until we have more, more knowledge, then I think using 12 milligram in, in most patients is reasonable. What the right choice is and whether the effect size is large enough in if if considering 12 milligrams versus uh, IL-6 inhibitors is a bit more more difficult and at least uh, the the current uh, Danish uh, Infectious Diseases Society guidelines kind of recommend both as as options in patients that are worsening but there's probably a stronger preference for for uh, for interleukin-6 uh, receptor inhibitors and. They are, there's also a stronger evidence base for that treatment, and it's currently recommended by the WHO, whereas uh, uh, the, the higher dose of dexamethasone in itself is, is not. Good. So this also leads me to one of the uh, challenges with uh, designing trials in a pandemic. Um, 
adverse events. And you mentioned that you recruited patients from India. Um, and um, the reports there uh, highlight a greater prevalence of mucormycosis. Um, so how did you account for that in this uh, trial um, during the design stage and the analysis stage? Well, first, during the design stage, we actually had set up the, the first COVID steroid trial, which assessed the low-dose hydrocortisone versus placebo. And after that was closed down, we, we surveyed all the participating uh, units and asked what trial would they prefer next. And there was a, a, the strongest preference was for, for what we did in the COVID steroid 2 trial. Some, uh, some participants uh, considered trials with even higher doses of steroids to, to be a, a good idea, but most were, would, would prefer the 12 milligram dose, which isn't that high actually. So, so I think that was in part because some of the concerns uh, from re regarding adverse events. Further, we, uh, we excluded all patients with an uh, with, uh, invasive fungal infection at, uh, at randomization. So those are not included and, and we registered that as an outcome during the trial and actually did see very low numbers. And, and while the difference is by no means uh, certain, at least the, the, the event counts were actually higher in, in, in the low dose group. So I don't think there's any strong signal here that, that the 12 milligram versus 6 milligram dose will increase the, the, the rate of invasive fungal infection substantially, but it may be a different uh, concern if even higher doses are used, as has been used in, in some places in India, and also if it's combined with other Im immunosuppressive therapies. And, and we don't really know when the, the balance uh, tips with, with combination therapies yet because it hasn't really been assessed. But at least considering 12 milligram alone, there's not any signs that is, it's a strong consideration in, in most patients. Right. I think a related question about the uh, trial is, you mentioned that it, it was done across, for, across Europe, Switzerland and in India. Um, did you think about the possibility that there is geographical variation in outcome and perhaps treatment response in these patients? Yes, we consider it, uh, and for several reasons, we decided to do the trial as, as we did anyway. First, we, we, we have a subgroup analysis according to, to Europe versus India in, in, of the primary outcome in the main paper, and we plan to go into details uh, with the other outcomes, looking at whether there's a difference between uh, European and Indian patients. Second, another thing that was discussed was whether the standards of, of care might vary across continents. And I don't have enough practice myself with, with how everything is, is handled separately in all four countries. But at least we found that the standards of care were relatively similar also because the participating hospitals in India were mostly private hospitals. So there may be a difference compared to, to uh, public hospitals in, in India, even though I cannot say for certain. We also tried to, to, um, to, to consider the, the, the situation and, and that this was, was a treatment that would be a focus in, in, in multiple continents and where results would likely be applied in multiple continents as well. So we think that that including patients both from, from Europe and from India was a, was a good way to make sure that the, the results were also applicable in case we found no differences for, for patients in, in other countries. So in, 
in conclusion, I think it was a, it, it was a good idea to have uh, inclusion in both Europe and India, and it, it was also a really great research opportunity and a, a great collaboration in, in every aspect. And, and I think it's very positive that we have representation from, from multiple countries and multiple continents in the trial. Well, 100% agree, uh, Anders. Any final thoughts before we wrap up this podcast? Well, I think a few final thoughts that, that are worth mentioning is that I think we should consider how we do trials in, in the future, especially in situations like this, because I think if, if, if I could have changed one thing in the trial, I would probably have considered conducting an adaptive trial instead today, because now we are, we are with an answer that indicates benefit, but we are not as certain as we would like to be. And, and if we had done this using an adaptive design, there was a higher probability that we would have been able to continue and, and reach a, a more conclusive conclusive ev evidence base. So I think that's something that we need to, to consider more and also something that other trials have, have paved the way for during the, the pandemic. I also think that we need to uh, think about always trying to learn as much as possible from a trial, even if it's inconclusive. And it's not that we should always uh, go with the, 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 the treatment that's favored by the point estimate, but at least we should try to consider what, what's the, what kind of treatment are we dealing with? What are the, the availability, the cost? How well is it known? What are the likely uh, uh, benefits and what are the likely disadvantages to both clinicians and patients? And for a therapy that's with a drug that's well known, relatively cheap and, and accessible, I think the, the 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 evidence that's needed to change practice may be smaller for something that's new, expensive or invasive or so forth. So I think we need to to more carefully consider how we act in, in light of uncertainty and, and at the same level of evidence may not be required for, for all treatments. For some treatments, we may need higher standards than today. And for some treatments, it may be okay to change practice based on, on somewhat uh, lower uh, certainty of, of evidence. Interesting thought, uh, Dr. Granlundman. Thanks again uh, for taking the time to kind of joined this podcast and congratulations on both the trial and your publication in ICM uh, of the base injury analysis. Thank you so much for discussing. Thank you very much and thanks for having me.